The Slate Serial Spoiler Special is brought to you by Squarespace. The new Squarespace 7 platform has a redesigned interface, 15 new templates, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, and a new feature called Cover Pages. Try it at squarespace.com and get 10% off when you enter the offer code SPOILER. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. The following podcast contains explicit language. Previously on the Serial Spoiler Special. I mean, this was a fascinating development for the show. It really shows the story evolving in real time. The next episode, which is in two weeks, it would finally be the one about the attorney. She's not sure, but like she would not convict him. The question of whether or not you should convict somebody can be distinguished to some degree from whether or not you believe they did it. You can't get everybody. Some people say no to the interview. Jay, I was totally underwhelmed by the Nisha call. It was written in pen and that was different. You could totally misremember something if you add importance to it. I can understand the need for sort of an exhalation, a reset. These guys are so fucking wily. Hi, I'm David Hagland, a senior editor at Slate. And this is the spoiler special podcast about Serial, the multi-part investigative series from This American Life. Every Thursday, we talk about the latest episode, and every Thursday, I'm joined by Slate staff writer Katie Waldman. She joins me from our D.C. studio. Hey, Katie. Hey, David. And our guest this week is Slate assistant editor Laura Anderson. Hey, Laura. Hi, David. Today, we're going to talk about episode 10 of Serial called The Best Defense is a Good Defense. Uh, It seemed to me this episode was essentially broken down into two parts. The first part was all about this question of anti-Muslim sentiment in the investigation, in the trial. And the second part, which covered a lot of ground, was about Christina Gutierrez, the defense attorney. Among the various things that that part covered, I really want to talk about the deal with Jay, which we've been anticipating. But first, let's talk about this question of anti-Muslim sentiment, which, as I'm sure both of you know, has emerged in the discussion around Serial over the last few weeks. But this was the first really thorough look at that. What did you guys think? I mean, I thought it was to some extent persuasive. I think I fell on the same place that um, Sarah ended up, which is that it is not the sole governing cause of whatever unfolded, but it could have, that kind of casual prejudice could have played a role. And especially hearing words like honor code and besmirched, she dwelled on that word particularly, and then comparing that to sort of my mental loop of a non-talking, just the vocabulary of that sort of old world, vengeful, controlling um, stereotype versus the way Adnan comes off, it it did seem really, really different. And it was kind of eye-opening to hear that that's the way people were talking about him. I had a much stronger reaction than you did, Katie. I was surprised by the way that Sarah framed the issue of anti-Muslim sentiment by starting out saying, ah, you know, I don't really think this was, you know, this wasn't the the main reason that Adnan was, you know, uh, arrested and then convicted. And then she went on to lay out all of these examples of things that to me seem like extremely clear and somewhat offensive stereotypes about Muslims and Pakistanis. Mm. And it seemed like a really good example of the issue of white privilege that has been brought up by various journalists, including Jay Caspi and Kang, where, you know, Koenig has the ability to step back and say, oh, you know, I don't really think that this is an issue. And yet I think 
to at least Adnan's mother, it was like, you know, I don't know. It was, what, David, I, you seem to be agreeing with me, maybe. Well, I agree with you on one count, but totally disagree with you on another, which is that I think Koenig is totally aware of that. I think that she sets it up as, look, I, she knows she's a white person, right? She's not unaware of this fact, in my, in my view. And she sets this up as, you know, I'm not so sure what I think of this as a way of introducing the subject and then lays out all of those things, which I totally agree with you, were really striking. And so there was some really bald racism in this yeah. episode, I thought. I mean, particularly in the, the uh, bail, the question of mm-hmm. bail, the bail right. hearing. Right, when they kept using Pakistan as an adjective, like this Pakistan yeah. man. I, I also, but I did get the sense that this was sort of a frame that people may have um, may have originally put around the case, and then as they were exposed to more of the facts, maybe they discarded it and realized, like, oh, he's just, you know, he's an American kid, um, and he's no different. I was sort of hoping, or the impression, the hopeful impression I got, and maybe this is just Pollyanna-ish, was that, you know, there's these set of there's the set of biases that existed in people's minds, and then they sort of let go of them as they learned more. Did you guys not get that sense? No, I did not get that sense at all. And the juror, the male juror whom Koenig interviewed saying that, you know, it may be in that society they don't respect women just made it seem like mm. the prosecution had done a really good job of painting Adnan to be uh, a controlling stereotype of a Muslim guy. Yeah, exactly. We also heard from Stella Armstrong, a juror who we've heard from before, who said that in the discussions, this issue came up. And, I, you know, I, there are, to my mind, a couple of different, probably more than a couple, but there are at least a couple of different um, possible ways in which this kind of bias uh, was brought in as a possible factor. One was the investigation. Hmm. Um, that you know, for instance, there was that uh, consultant who had, you know, right. laid out these different things. So I, it, it did seem to have some effect uh, throughout. And then the question is how much. And to me, the the question of the ju- the jurors' deliberations that was the the most damning part of it because it suggested to me that it was a factor. Maybe it's not the deciding factor. Maybe it's not the decisive one. But in a case like this one, where the evidence is circumstantial. It hinges on this, you know, one person's testimony largely to have that other little, you know, little or not little factor that pushes people towards guilt. I mean, that to me really highlighted the role that discrimination and racism and anti-Muslim sentiment, you know, the role that it can play in a, in a case like this. And also the fact that Jay later said that thing about, oh, I remember Adnan invoking Allah at some point. And he said that kind of late in the game. He didn't say that in the first few interviews or the first trial, but by the second trial, he was saying, oh, Adnan um, said Allah knows or, you know, Allah knows all or something. And that implied to me that maybe Jay had a sense or the people who were helping Jay prepare his testimony had a sense that bias was a factor. And that made me really uncomfortable um, that people might be coaching him to to exploit that or or that he felt that that might be an effective strategy. Yeah, that was so striking to me as well, because it it seemed out of nowhere. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, part mm-hmm. of that and this may not be fair because obviously so many years have passed, but we've heard Adnan talk a lot and 
the the way that it sort of just dropped in, it didn't sound like the voice that we've heard. Absolutely. Right. And Adnan has gotten more religious, we are led to believe, since he has been in prison. And so, and he still does not sound anything like that. He does not like drop Allah into conversation with, with Koenig. So I agree. It sounded very, very different from the Adnan that we know. Yeah, and it sounded like a a pretty carefully placed comment. This is at least, you know, my interpretation, a pretty carefully placed comment by Jay, possibly encouraged by the prosecution to to paint that picture. And again, it's not the only piece of evidence. I don't, you know, I I think so I took when Koenig says, I don't think this is the only I don't think this was the only factor. I don't think this was that's that I think is fair to say, but it, but she did lay out all of the different ways it could have affected the decision and seemed to affect the way the jurors were thinking. And I certainly finished this episode feeling like this is another way that, you know, a person of color in this country facing a criminal charge has to deal with things that hmm. white people like myself don't have to deal with. I think that, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about uh, Koenig's framing, but what bothered me about it was her assumption that her audience shared her background. That's what I got from it when she started out by saying, uh, you can tell that I don't really believe uh, Shamim. Um, and I don't, I mean, I think the whole point of some of the things that have been written about Serial in recent weeks and its uh, and its perspective on race uh, is that not everyone who listens to Serial shares her background, but she seemed to be trying to make this case specifically to maybe a white audience, which I think is something, I mean, you're saying that she did this deliberately, David. Um, and I don't know if that's a, if that is an accurate, uh, if, if her perception of what her audience is is really quite accurate. And I, and I'm very curious, I would be very curious to hear the take of people like Jay Caspian King about this particular episode. I wonder, though, if in Sarah's defense, it was less about race than sort of her allergy to facile explanations. Like we've got, you know, the facile explanation that race put Adnan in jail or that her lawyer sucked or, or on the other hand, that Jay definitely did it. And I think she was just trying to introduce some uncertainty in general. But I do agree with you that she could, um, you know, try to talk to different groups of people. Well, we should really talk about this second part of this episode, which covered, like I said, covered a lot of ground and I thought was very interesting. And that was the part about Christina Gutierrez, the defense attorney. But before we do that, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor. If you need to design your own website, you should check out Squarespace, which just launched the latest version of their platform, Squarespace 7. It has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, new templates, and a great feature called Cover Pages. And here's why this stuff is great. If you have any experience, you know, going back a few years, trying to make a website that looks good, you know how hard it used to be. It was so frustrating. You wanted to make a great site. You spent a lot of time fussing with HTML, and the result just didn't look very professional. But with Squarespace 7, you'll get a beautiful website that's simple and powerful. You'll also get 24-7 support via live chat and email, and you'll get it for just 8 bucks a month. You'll also get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. Start a trial. There's no credit card required, and you can start building your website right away. Make sure to use the offer code SPOILER to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Serial Spoiler Special. That's squarespace.com, and the offer code is SPOILER. Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. So the second part of this episode was all about Christina Gutierrez. And we have been waiting for this 
episode, really, for a while, because we've known that the defense that she presented seemed to have a lot of problems, and the way she presented it seemed to have a lot of problems. I'm curious whether, now that we've heard more about it, you guys came away thinking, oh, actually, she did fine, or, oh, my goodness, she was terrible. Katie, what did you think? Oh, man. I mean, I just thought she was fascinating, and I... I'm not sure. It seemed like she could have been originally, like at the beginning of her career, at least, like the star of an ABC legal drama. You know, she's hot headed and chain smoking and foul mouthed and deeply invested in her cases and falls into depressions when she loses them. She's a pit bull on the pants leg of justice, Katie. Yes. Yes. Which was also something that people said about George Bush, right? Like a pit bull on the pant leg of opportunity. Anyway, I don't know. Um, She seems like this very competent individual who was just kind of marching to the beat of her own drum. But then, you know, as you got to hear more about um, her sort of erratic behavior and asking uh, clients for money and uh, and seeming agitated uh, in her later trials, it seemed like maybe her competence was deteriorating. She was kind of unraveling with diabetes and MS. And it, it did seem like towards the end of her career, she maybe wasn't equipped to be doing the work that she was doing. And so it sort of was a tragic arc for me a little bit. Like this is someone who could have really helped Adnan and maybe in the first trial did. It seems like um, they were ready to acquit. And then sort of as the timeline stretched on, she she lost it a bit. I, so my opinion going into this episode was that uh, Christina Gutierrez was... Um, an incompetent and extremely unlikable character. And I think my opinion has remained about the same. I did not hear any instance of her being the uh, competent and high-powered lawyer that she was described to be by many of her associates. And it seemed to me that she was surrounded by a lot of people who enabled her incompetence at the end of her career. And hearing things like her opening statement where she explained what Pakistan is mm. and and her questioning of Jay, which, uh, you know, Sarah Koenig played at length, I just could not see any glimmer of a good defense there. And I also feel, and this is something that has sort of bothered me throughout the series, that she is so unlikable. Her voice is so annoying to me. And maybe I'm just sort of upset because like this is revealing my own sort of internalized sexism. But like I just find her to be an incredibly grating individual. Um, and yeah, I, it was very shocking to me to hear that Adnan does not seem to be angry or uh, upset about the way that she defended him and in fact has fond memories of her. Yeah, that was it was so interesting to hear uh, him say that because it just seems so generous of him, mm. given all of the other things we've heard. I mean, there was this this theory uh, that I think came from Rabia Chowdhury. It was mentioned before, and Koenig addressed it again in this episode, that she had thrown the case mm-hmm. deliberately for the appeal money. Koenig said she doesn't believe that. I thought she presented that side pretty persuasively. I came away from this episode thinking, you know, no, I don't, I, you know, she does not seem to have thrown the case, in my view. But she also seems to have reached a point in her life when she was no longer capable of of being the defense attorney that she was. Uh, I, I thought that there were, for me, the glimmers of her, you know, previous uh, competence and and even um, 
you know, real skill came in, you know, for instance, that description I mentioned of being a, a pit bull in the pants leg of justice that, you know, there was probably a time when that f- ferocity that she has uh, was really useful. And, you know, you could and, you know, Koenig pointed this out. You could hear her getting worked up about the J deal, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but then the way in which she sort of trails off and and seems to ramble and seems to lose the thread uh I was really struck that she that she the way she rebutted the cell t- the cell phone um, mm, evidence yeah. was that she said it was the wrong kind of phone, the wrong brand, and no one told her ahead of time. Oh, that actually doesn't make a difference. It was surprising I, that anyone could, on her team could let her go ahead and make that argument. I mean, I guess that partly highlights how young this technology was mm-hmm. at the time, especially when it came to tr- criminal trials and the law. People were still figuring this stuff out in a way. Certainly, you know, non-experts who are lawyers trying to, you know, dig through whatever research there was instead. But yeah. It, it was an Ericsson phone. I mean, that just that must have just fallen so flat. And and in the meantime, we know that there was all all of this stuff about that you know supposed evidence that doesn't line up. And if she had said, "Look at the way this doesn't line up," I mean, I I can only imagine that that would have gone some way to putting reasonable doubt in the minds of these jurors. And and she failed to do that. But let's talk about the this deal with Jay because I thought this was on the one hand really interesting. Uh, but ultimately somewhat frustrating. So as I understand it, what happened was uh, the prosecutor told Jay, basically arranged for Jay to get a pro bono lawyer, not a public defender, but a, but a private attorney who would work pro bono before Jay was even charged, I believe, although I, I didn't get the I timeline think it was quite straight. Slightly, it was after he was charged, but he knew he was going to be charged. The detectives came and told him he was going to be charged, and then they introduced him to the prosecutor, who then introduced him to this lawyer. So, like, it was all sort of arranged ahead of time, was how I understood it. Right. So, it was apparently strange to everyone involved. We don't hear from anyone who says, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. Everybody says, this is, this is bizarre. But then the judge, Wanda Hurd, says, well, because Jay doesn't really see a problem with it and he doesn't realize he's getting anything, then, you know, it's no big deal. Which seems like such a bullshit response to me. Like, <laughs> yeah. he's obviously getting this benefit whether he realizes it's, it's improper or not. I can't believe I, the judge's response was, I think, the most shocking to me about this whole story. Okay, but to play devil's advocate, and I agree with you guys that this is totally fishy and should not happen in a world of ideal justice or any justice. But, I mean, doesn't Jay already have reason to feel beholden to the state anyway? Like, they're basically saying, hey, testify against Adnan and, you know, your sentence will reflect some sort of leniency. Like, we will take that into account. So I guess he sort of already has that benefit and that that allegiance to the state's case right or or does that is that a dumb thing to say no i think that's a good point no and i'm sure that yeah i mean i agree i think that was probably the reasoning that you know he is cooperating with them he is in a sense trying to give them what they want and presumably the judge's uh, rationale was that this doesn't seem to have materially affected that relationship because even though they were giving him something that they should not have given him, it seems. Uh, you know, he, he he didn't seem to factor that in. To me, what was frustrating about it was that it raises questions about the prosecution's behavior and about their relationship to Jay a little more generally and how they were acting. 
And neither the judge nor, at this point, as far as we know, Sarah Koenig, has been able to investigate that any further. Like, why did they do this? Why did they do that in this case? Did they do that in other cases? Um, what does that say about what they were doing and their relationship with this witness? Uh, it, it seems like we are maybe not going to find that out uh, unless, unless we revisit this in a, in a future episode, but that doesn't seem terribly likely. I don't think Koenig has ever mentioned the present day situation of the prosecution uh, or, you know, whether they're still alive, whether they're still practicing, uh, you know, what their, uh, I guess, behavior was like in other cases. Um, I would be curious to know that as well, David, but I'm not sure if we've ever heard any more details about that. Well, likewise with the detectives, right? There are moments uh, throughout the series where as someone who's done, you know, some amount of reporting, I, I start to see what I think are the are the holes, not because uh, Koenig and her fellow producers have failed to pursue them. I'm sure they have. I mean, I get the strong sense throughout that they have, you know, for instance, with Heyman Lee's family, people kept wondering, why aren't we hearing from them? But then we heard, oh, well, you know, she tried and tried, couldn't reach them. I think with the prosecution and with the police, those are people who generally aren't going to talk to you. And I don't think they did. And I don't think we're going to hear from them. And I don't know how you find the truth about stuff like this without really getting deep into that that territory, which is why, you know, crime reporting, as with so many other beats, sources are so important. And this even gets back, perhaps, to uh, Koenig's uh, somewhat disputed claim at one point uh, in an earlier episode that she's not a crime reporter, which struck some people as strange. Here you are reporting about a crime. You have just become a crime reporter. Mm-hmm. But I think what she meant was, I suspect what she meant was exactly this, that she does not have a long history of doing this. She d- does not have, you know, long developed sources within, say, the Baltimore PD, and she can't draw on them. And, and sometimes that comes through. So a so, uh, couple other things we want to get to before we go, but... But our producer, Joel Meyer, is waving frantically in this, in, in, behind glass. Yeah, okay. I want to find out what's on his mind. So, David, normally I don't want to turn this mic on. I just want to stay behind the glass and let you guys do your thing. But one thing that struck me during this week's episode, I forgot that Koenig had reported on Gutierrez a long time ago. And that was like okay. kind of like the beginning of this whole thing. Right. And I was like, she has got to know more about her personal life. And I was like... What is going on with her and money? Like, is it medical bills or is it debts that she needs to get paid or is she freaking out about dying or whatever? And I was like, I feel like Sarah Koenig is not telling us something that she knows about something very personal in Gutierrez's life that we're not hearing about. But anyways. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, I just sort of took that as a sign of her mental unraveling, like in the same way that she sort of... misapplied her rigor like to the wrong things it wasn't that she was half-assing the case but she was just like focusing really intensely and passionately on the wrong details like it seemed like money became that thing later in her career or at least that's that's how it read in the absence of more background more information yeah i agree with you katie i um well one of her colleagues said that she was just not good with money that was sort of the only explanation given and it seemed to me given what we know about her personality that if she believed that she was owed money, even if she was mistaken about that, that she could be very aggressive about that, given that she seemed to be very aggressive about things like feeling that she was accused of lying by the judge. I mean, there's 
there's like not being good with money and then there's being <laughs> super bad with money and having a state fund pay out almost a, you know, like a quarter of a million dollars that's or whatever true. it is to resolve 28, to 28. different yeah 28 yeah. different infractions that's true that is true yeah. and saying bring $10,000 cash to the courthouse or whatever it was I mean that's the right. thing that jumped out at me in like an unmarked black bag <laughs> right. or something like, we've I talked, mean no we've talked a lot about process on this show and that's the one thing where I'm like wait a minute episode 10 is where we're going to hear about $10,000 being demanded in cash by a lawyer? You're, I, I do want to hear more about those 28 instances in which uh, the state had to pay her clients because because she mishandled their funds. Right. Well, in that Whitman case where the older brother was convicted of killing his younger brother, just sounds horrific. And I, I was online this morning Googling it and looking at Reddit and uh, saw that there's actually an attempt to reinvestigate that case as well. I want to make one little point about this section, which is, is such a minor thing, but it really struck me. I kept thinking about the fact that Koenig refers to her as Christina. Yes, yes, <laughs> that, that struck me too. I mean, I, and I, it just got me thinking again about the choices that they make about what to call different people. You know, the prosecutor was Yurik, the judge is Judge Wanda Hurd, etc. Uh, you know, there's Jay and there's Adnan. It's interesting that they that she chose to call her by her first name this this whole time. Uh, as a writer myself, I would call her Gutierrez. Um, maybe because of all that reporting she's done on her in the past, Joel, she feels like this is a, a person that she knows and she feels comfortable addressing her on a first-name basis. I think it, that's just a little bit of the radio theater of Serial in general, where it's like, well, she's going to become one of the, the stars of the show. She's a main player in the show right. as opposed to the judge who's only going to, we think, come in you know, at a couple of points in the show. So you're going to use the first name, I think. That's a storytelling thing. All right. I'll, 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 I'll buy that. Uh, speaking of storytelling, one thing we've been talking about among our ourselves as we get near the final episode. I mean, I, th- I think we can probably bet that there are two episodes left. They've said 12 repeatedly, even though they've you know held out some uncertainty. Uh, so I'm curious, I want to throw this out to our listeners. You know, a lot of people have mentioned The Wire. A lot of people have mentioned The Staircase, uh, which the producers of Serial themselves have mentioned as, as a model. But what else is there that you've read or watched or listened to that has grabbed you in this way, that has dealt with some of the same themes, some of the same, you know, kinds of of problems, uh, let us know. You can email us at podcasts at slate.com. We'll share some of the best suggestions we hear for things you should enjoy after Serial is over next week. So I hope you'll join us. We'll be discussing episode 11. I want to thank Katie Waldman, as always. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, David. And thank you, Laura, for joining us this week. Thanks, guys. Our producer is Joel Meyer. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Katie Waldman and Laurie Anderson, I'm David Hagland, and I'll talk to you next week. If you like what you just heard, spend a little more time with Slate. Our network is home to some of the most popular, award-winning, and long-running podcasts out there. Discover new ways to think about everything you love. Politics, pop culture, language, parenting, sports, the Supreme Court, money, and women's issues. Plus, there's our daily show, The Gist, the most entertaining evening news podcast around. Check us out in the iTunes store at itunes.com slash slate podcasts.